So, Hollywood, we're still waiting for your phone call. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elpstrom. In the history of the Indian Wars in Texas, two remarkable battles were fought in the dusty panhandle trading post of Adobe Walls. Last week, we talked about the first battle, the last great moment of glory for a legendary frontier figure. The second was the first battle in a war that finally saw the end of the Comanche presence in Texas. This week we present part two of the two battles of Adobe Walls. But first, in the interest of fairness because of last week, who is your favorite Houston Astro? Well, I'm going to go with your pick from the Texas Rangers, which is my favorite baseball player ever, Nolan Ryan. Throw in heat. Well... You know, as a lifelong Houston Astros fan, I could give you a long list of my favorites from uh, J.R. Richard to Mike Scott to, of course, Nolan Ryan, Greg Biggio, Lance Berkman, um, you know, tons of them. But my current favorite um, is Jose Altuve, the uh, all-star second baseman um, who is currently playing for the Astros. He's a little guy like me, but uh, that man can play baseball. I really should say uh, my Uncle John Henry, because he got to suit up for a while in the 60s and play for the Strohs. But honestly, it's Orbit. I love that mascot. <laughs> He's a good mascot. He's a great mascot. So, Orbit, we salute you. Of course, the best, of course, the ultimate Houston Astro is still the legendary Astro Dome. Yes. It will be in our hearts forever. Always. Last week, we talked about the history of the tiny, dusty trading post of adobe walls deep in the panhandle of Texas and the first famous battle fought there in the summer of 1864. The inconclusive fight between the U.S. Army, led by famed mountain man Kit Carson, and the might of the Comanche and their Kiowa allies was not the last battle fought in this obscure corner of the Texas Plains. In June of 1874, a group of enterprising businessmen set up two stores near the ruins of the old trading post in an effort to serve the population of the buffalo hunters operating in the area. The early 1870s were the height of the great period of bison hunting, when the demand for buffalo hides in the eastern U.S. led to the slaughter of millions of buffalo, nearly causing the species to go extinct. After virtually wiping out the Central Plains herds in 1872 to 1873, the hunters moved south into the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles to tap into the herds of the Southern Plains, deep in hostile Indian territories. There were around 200 to 300 hunters operating in Texas by 1874. The complex quickly grew to include a general store and a corral, a saloon, a blacksmith shop, and a sod store used to purchase buffalo hides. Naturally, white men slaughtering the very cornerstone of existence for the Plains Indians in the area was bound to cause trouble. The fact that the hunters killed hundreds of buffalo at a time and only took their hides, leaving the corpses to rot on the prairie, was especially disturbing for the natives. It is generally accepted that the federal and local officials encouraged the hunting as a way to starve out the still independent tribes and forcing them into reservations. Whatever the case, violence was bound to happen. By late June, two hunters had been killed by Indians 25 miles down the river on Chicken Creek, 
and two more hunters killed in a camp on a tributary of the Salt Fork of Red River, north of present-day Clarendon. These stories of the Indian depredations spread to all the hunting camps, and a large crowd gathered in from the surrounding country at the adobe walls. The Southern Plains tribes, Comanche, Cheyenne, Kiowa, and Arapaho, all certainly perceived the post and the buffalo hunting as a major threat to their existence. They put aside their differences and banded together to deal with the threat. That spring, at a Sundance, Comanche medicine man Isate promised victory and immunity from bullets to warriors who took the fight to the enemy. A force gathered together to go out and kill the whites at adobe walls. The size of this force is unknown, but estimates range from 300 to as many as 1,500. In actuality, most historians put the number at around 700 or less. In late June 1874, this force decided to attack the post, which at the time was occupied by 27 men and one woman. Among the men was famed sharpshooter Billy Dixon and a young hunter, who later went on to greater fame as a lawman, William Bat Masterson. On the Indian side, along with Isatai, were Satana and Gapago, veterans of the first Adobe Walls battle, as well as a young Quanah Parker. The Indian warriors attacked the outpost at 2 a.m. on June 27. Saloon owner James Hanrahan fired a shot to waken the camp when the ridge pole supporting the roof of his saloon collapsed. The men in the camp rushed to help repair the damage. Later reports indicate that Hanrahan knew of the attack in advance, but was worried that the hunters would leave, hurting his business. He may have broken the support beam for his own building so that the men in the post would be awake and alert when the attack came at dawn. Dixon later wrote about the initial attack in his memoirs. He described the scene of 700 warriors thundering across the plains toward the tiny outpost. He said, There was never a more splendidly barbaric sight. In after years, I was glad that I had seen it. Hundreds of warriors, the flower of the fighting men of the southwestern plains tribes, mounted upon their finest horses, armed with guns and lances and carrying heavy shields of thick buffalo hide, were coming like the wind. Overall was splashed the rich colors of red, vermilion, and ochre on the bodies of the men, on the bodies of the running horses. Scalps dangled from bridles, gorgeous war bonnets fluttered their plumes, bright feathers dangled from the tails and manes of the horses, and the bronzed, half-naked bodies of the riders glittered with ornaments of silver and brass. Behind this headlong, charging host stretched the plains, on whose horizon the rising sun was lifting its morning fires. The warriors seemed to emerge from this glowing background. The first attack nearly did the hunters in. The Indian warriors got close enough to pound the doors and windows of the buildings with their rifle butts. The residents of adobe walls had to use their pistols and short-range rifles, but they were inside buildings which were secured and were able to drive the first wave of attackers off. Once the attackers moved away from the buildings, though, the hunters were able to utilize their long-range, powerful buffalo rifles, the famed Sharps 50 caliber rifles. Now, if you've seen the Tom Selleck movie Quigley Down Under, and if you haven't, you simply must watch it, this is the type of rifle he was using. The fighting went on throughout the day, since they were essentially defending their supply base. Three of the hunters were killed on the first day, two of them a pair of brothers who were asleep in a wagon. The hunters counted 15 dead Indian warriors close to the buildings, but had no way of knowing how many were killed or wounded further away. Quanah Parker was wounded when his horse was shot out from under him as he retreated after the initial attack. After the fighting of the first day, the Indians laid siege to the hunters of adobe walls. 
One more man, William Olds, accidentally killed himself on the fifth day of the siege when he shot himself in the head climbing down a ladder. That's not very lucky. During the second day, a few more groups of hunters made their way into the town to bolster the defenders, while others who were nearby took word up to Dodge City, Kansas, and to army posts elsewhere that the attack was going on. On the third day, the most famous event of the battle took place. The hunters spotted 15 warriors scouting the battlefield from a bluff just under a mile away from town. Billy Dixon borrowed a big 50 sharps, which was the most powerful rifle any of the hunters had, and he cleanly dropped a warrior from his horse at a range of 1,538 yards, or nine-tenths of a mile. Did they measure that? They did. They did after Hmm. the battle. They measured it. Interesting. Dixon downplayed his feat, calling it a, quote, scratch shot, but it apparently unnerved the attacking Indians enough to cause large numbers of them to begin leaving the fight. By day six of the siege, nearly 100 hunters had reinforced the defenders of adobe walls, while the Indians came to believe that if they kept attacking, they would eventually all be picked off by the deadly long-range marksmen. The fighting dwindled after about a week, and nobody knows how many casualties the Indians suffered, though it may be as few as 30 deaths all told. In July, a relief party of hunters and cowboys from Dodge made its way to the post, and then in August, the army finally arrived. They escorted the Adobe Walls fighters to safety. After the army left, the Indians burned the entire post to the ground. The Battle of Adobe Walls was a mixed bag for both sides. The Indians had succeeded in driving the buffalo hunters from the region, and both sides suffered relatively little casualties. However, the failure of a huge force of Indians to crush a small group of white hunters, and the notion that their spiritual leader's promise of protection from the white man's bullets was a crushing spiritual blow. Furthermore, the uniting of all the tribes prompted the United States Army to commit to crushing the Comanche and Kiowa once and for all. In September, Dixon, acting as a scout for four U.S. Army cavalry troopers, held off an attack by a larger band of Comanche warriors. For his actions in the fight, Billy Dixon became one of eight civilians to win the Medal of Honor. This was the first engagement of the Red River War, which raged through June of 1875. The U.S. Army was finally able to destroy the power of the Comanche and Kiowa on the Texas Plains, forcing them into reservations. The war ended when Quanah Parker led his last holdouts to the reservation at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. In the end, a fight at a tiny outpost in the middle of the plains was a catalyst for the final elimination of the Comanche threat to the Texas frontier. In the years after the battle, Adobe Walls was rebuilt again, this time as a ranch station for the Turkey Track Ranch. Bill Dixon moved there in 1883 and lived there until his death. Adobe Walls never had more than a few dozen people, and by the 1930s was completely abandoned. Today, the area is a ghost town with a few crumbling ruins of the ranch station remaining. In the 1970s, an archaeological excavation was done of the original post and the frontier town, as well as the battlefields. Today, a small stone marker is the only sign that these momentous battles occurred. This story reminds me of when we talked about the Great Comanche Raid, mm-hmm. um, about the tribes uniting and sort of this massive battle that sort of took place. And I think that's just, it's it's almost cinematic to picture in your mind, especially that descriptive paragraph that Scott read about, you know, the warriors coming out of the, with all the, and every, and the everything. It's, it was crazy. Yeah, it's straight out of a, you know, of a John V. Um, 
you just you just you, you can really get swept away in the imagery that that Dixon wrote about. Um, but you know, this was thirty men, you know, that had powerful rifles, but thirty men in the in a in a in some buildings, and they held off these the Comanche, you know, the entire Comanche force, and it was pretty devastating to them. I mean, their their leader had said, you know, the white man's bullet can't kill you, you know, spotted horse. <laughs> the white man's bullet can't kill me. <laughs> and then, you know, uh-oh, from a mile away, we get popped off of a horse um, <laughs> by the white man's bullet. Yeah. Well, it, it, I, I was going to say, the from the, uh, the Comanche's point of view, um, it was a pretty horrible thing that these hunters oh, were yeah. coming in and doing. I mean, it's like they're coming in and wiping out um, their entire, basically the focus of their entire lifestyle. You know, being that those massive herds of bison, as a as a connection to this, uh, just the other day I was watching a show on the History Channel, History Channel, Travel Channel, um, where they were talking about the the building of the Transcontinental Railroad and how a big part of that was to uh, to drive off the Indians that were between you know points on the map that they're trying to get across. That, like we mentioned, they would bring in these buffalo hunters and said, you know, just slaughter as many of these buffalo mm-hmm. as slaughter as many of these bison as you can, you know, and they showed a picture of like this big giant wall of bison bones. It's like, why did they have to kill yeah. so many at once? It was just yeah, ridiculous. It, and, you know, I've done some reading on the subject and, and, uh, you know, the, the buffalo hunting was, was pretty awful and, and wasteful of, of resources. But, you know, there, there has been some recent study in academics shown that, that even the, the introduction of firearms uh, into the Plains tribes really, Cause the plain the, the the plains tribes to overhunt buffalo as well. So when you have firearms with the plains tribes making hunting more efficient for them, and then you've got this entire population of of outsiders coming in and just just killing the the animals and not even utilizing every part of them, then it then it it was a combination of both that that hastened the the end of you know the the near extinction of the buffalo and the end of the life of way of life of the plains tribes. But it is undeniable that the U.S. government did encourage those hunters to go out and specifically hunt those, overhunt the buffalo population to drive the Indians off of the land. Well, I think about, um, again, watch a lot of movies, but it's funny uh, when talking about Bat Masterson yeah. being there. So then um, I can't help but picture like Tom Sizemore. Yeah. Because he, you know, because uh, uh, he played. Yeah, he played Bat Masterson. Yeah, and uh, Bill Pullman was his brother yeah, Ed. And this was in the uh, the Kevin Costner White Earp movie from the the nineteen nineties. Well, no, but in in that ver- in White Earp, like there's a whole uh, piece of plot in there about like buffalo hunting and and a piece of that. But it, it's it's um, the, again, it's one of those stories of Texas that you're like, this is cinematic, and why is this not yeah. a movie? Like, why is this not like a a palpable scene in a great Western yeah. film? It's pretty remarkable. I this weekend I went to the Fort Worth uh, livestock show, uh, and it's a fair essentially. But they did have a buffalo there, and if you think a cow is big or or a bull is big, no. a buffalo is massive. It is, it is truly a massive animal. I mean. It, yeah, but you know the thing is, it's not just that it's a massive animal because you see a, a, a like there are powerful bulls, there are some powerful right. cows, but when you see a buffalo, it's kind of like 
you see like a recreational runner and then you say Usain Bolt and you're like, that guy has muscles on his <laughs> yeah. muscles. Those, the, the Buffalo can, I, I want to say, uh, I'm, I want to say, and I might have this, the, the statistic wrong, but something like a Buffalo can jump, I think over six and a half feet straight up standing uh-huh. still. Um, if you ever are out in the country and you see like really high fences, they're, they're probably keeping a bunch of, uh, like rare wild game or yeah. buffaloes because you have to have eight foot like reinforced fences to keep them in because they're they're insanely powerful. Right, and I want to say that uh, Neil Young actually has or at one point had uh, a very large herd of buffalo on some of his property in the um, I think in North Dakota or Montana, and they were actually used for the Dances with Wolves movie for the buffalo herd. So. They they do exist still today, but you know, I can't even you know I've only seen on television and in film these massive herds of buffalo. I can't imagine these huge herds that existed in the 1800s. But you know when you when you like Scott said when you know the pictures of these walls of buffalo bones and mounds of buffalo hides, it is it was pretty remarkable what these what these weapons could do and what these these hunters could you know, could get through in, in a short period of time. So, you know, for the, for the Comanche to have tried to attack that in, in, uh, you know, they knew that they had to get them while they were, they were at, they were, they were close and get catch them by surprise. And they just ultimately failed to do so. Well, this is like a historical thing too, is, I mean, everybody here, uh, you know, it's like the famous movie 300, the battle of Thermopylae, this idea of, a tiny force holding off an, an unimaginably large force, but it's not like on the side of a cliff. It's, it's like in a, in a Adobe <laughs> hut in the middle of like a flat plain. And I think that's maybe one piece that's lost of this is like how, you know, it's just, it's an open field with like a little Adobe hut there that they're everybody sort of huddled into. So it was very yeah. impressive, but it's also kind of sad because this really marks the, beginning right. of the and, end. And I think the, the, how we bring this back to Texas is that this is the point when the the, the plains and the Llano Estacado and the, and the high plains of Texas, the Panhandle, ceased to be Comanche territory, and it became truly part of Texas. Yeah. So, Hollywood, we're still waiting for your phone call. <laughs> we keep throwing out these great movie ideas week mm-hmm. to week. No, what I was going to say a while ago is just the name Bat Masterson makes me think of the, the 1960s Batman and that he's walking around with a, a label on his back that says Bat Masterson. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. You love this show. You love Texas. So do your duty, get out there, and tell your friends, your enemies, and everyone you know to listen to Come and Take It. And why not go and leave a review on iTunes? Because it really helps us out to find new listeners just like you. If you'd like to support Come and Take It financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you, yes, you can become a Come and Take It Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.